beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. I'm Laura Tremaine, and I have 10 things to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. Each episode has a prompt or a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to a friend, or share on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Christy, welcome to 10 Things to Tell You. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. This is a this is a real treat. I am so glad that we're going to be talking about what we're going to talk about today, which is grief and loss, which is a hard topic. It's not, you know, a cheery, fluffy topic, and also the world is not cheery and fluffy right now. And in terms of grief and loss, it's something that is going to happen for everyone. And so it is a topic that needs to be talked about. And I think that you are a great person to lead us in this conversation. Can you just introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners so we we know why this is something that you are passionate about speaking on? Sure, absolutely. So I'm the co-founder of NEAR, and we're a startup really on a mission to improve the way we care and connect during times of serious illness and grief. So the way I landed um, where we are today with the work I'm doing, I've been working in the end-of-life space for about 18 years at this point. And as a child, I was always interested in healthcare, so I knew that that was a direction that I wanted to go in. But I really had a number of formative experiences from the age of 10 to about 22 that shaped my perspective on life, just who I am as a person that influences what I do today. So at the age of 10, I became a caregiver for one of the primary caregivers for my grandmother who was living with Alzheimer's. And I, I always like to say that, like to note that teenage caregivers have a myriad of different experiences. My experience was very positive. It was beautiful. It was honestly one of the great privileges of my life. And I was able to care for her until I was 16 when she passed away. 
And I was raised as an only child. I am, I was raised as an only child. And my, I had a cousin, Teresa, who was significantly older than me, but she was also an only child. And so we were like two peas in a pod, right? We were best friends. She was my person. And right after our grandmother died, her mom was diagnosed with cancer as well. And so for a number of years, I walked through that experience with my aunt, her mom, and my cousin, Teresa. And then unfortunately, she died when I was 17. And almost exactly a year later, Teresa was diagnosed with cancer. And so I was 18 and she was, you know, young as well. And so just walking through that experience with her, she ultimately was sick for about four years with a brief respite in between, was again, just changed everything about my life and how I see the world. And unfortunately, when I was 22, she passed away. And when she passed away, it was at a time where, and we still are, culturally, it's very difficult to talk about end-of-life issues and death. And her death was difficult in ways that it did not have to be, that we didn't understand at the time. You know, we, we were young, we were trying to figure it all out, and we didn't have the resources that we needed, which is a common problem. And so that really is what spurred my work in end of life. Just really, I have a deep belief that there has to be a better way. And so that mm. prompted me to, um, to spend my days working on that. God, it's just so important. I... I'm like just sitting here in awe of that story because starting when you were 10 years old, like in your most formative years, being a caregiver and also experiencing this loss when these loved ones did pass. I mean, I appreciate that you said there were parts of it that were beautiful, but Christy, that's a hard story. It is. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing it with us. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Near, this company that you founded? Yeah, absolutely. So part of the problem with the serious illness, when you're experiencing illness, serious illness, caregiving, the end of lifetime and after lost grief, there are incredible resources out there, especially in the last few years, but it's very difficult to find them because as a culture, we don't talk about death until, you know, it's at the very end. And so there's such a, such a, we're all at such a disadvantage because of that death avoidance, essentially, that's kind of woven in. And then at the end, you know, we're not able to have the full experience that is, is available to us because we oftentimes haven't had the right conversations or didn't know what questions to ask, et cetera, et cetera. And so near really exists. We have three pillars, care, connect, and celebrate. So our care pillar is focused on a care registry. So we do a really good job of surrounding people when they have a wedding or a baby. We have registries and we're able to say exactly what we need and then get those items or experiences, gift cards, et cetera, in response to those needs. But we didn't have something like that set up around serious illness and grief. And so we set up a care registry tool, which is, again, like a wedding registry or baby registry. And then... Wait, I think that is so... Smart (laughs) and creative because you're right. There's so many needs in this time that aren't met. And, you know, there's so many of us that would have neighbors, coworkers, friends who want to chip in or help or, you know, but sometimes we feel at a loss. We don't know how. And so, or especially if we're long distance, you know, and we can't actually be on the ground helping in any way. How smart is this actually? Can I ask you really quick? Is near for those who are at the end of their life or is it for their caregivers and loved ones or or both? So it is it is for both. We um, the care registry 
typically when someone sets up a care registry, it is set up by someone we refer to as a care coordinator. Oftentimes, the person in the crisis, in the moment of crisis, is not able to do that for themselves. So you have a care coordinator that's usually a sibling or a best friend, et cetera, and they're the one who sets that up for you. There are other elements of the site, like we have a care directory to help connect you with resources. Again, oftentimes, it's somebody who is supporting you, who's going to have the time and the energy to do that legwork and then come back to you. So we are for the benefit of the individual who is um, sick or grieving, but we are serving their support system as well. Okay. Okay. And then go on. You had two other pillars. Sure. So uh, care. So the CARES Care Registry Connect is our care directory. And you'll, you'll appreciate this. There's so many categories, but one of my favorite categories is legacy projects. Because we oftentimes think about, you know, our everyday quote legacy projects or the photo books that we do. And then we also think about projects that people do, you know, maybe after someone passes, putting together a recipe book to share with the family, things like that. But there are these incredible artists and creators and makers who have put together solutions to help you work on your legacy while you're still alive in the form of video interviews, video recording, you know, writing letters that are, of course, delivered to someone after you die. There's a myriad of opportunities to connect and deepen deepen those connections with our loved ones through these tools. So the care uh, directory connects you with things like that and just helps provide education on what's out there. And then, oh, I love that. Yeah. It, every day I discover someone new, it really feels like who's doing something really interesting in the space. And the I will say the beautiful thing about that is almost always these projects, these companies are being founded from a personal experience. So someone has a personal need or, you know, they see a hole that they've experienced personally, oftentimes tragically and emotionally, and they take their energy and pour it into a project like this. So it's, it's really beautiful. And then we have our celebrate section, which is new and coming. And that is focused on celebrating life, both after someone dies. So helping equip people to be able to have more personal funeral and memorial experiences. You know, it does doesn't have to be the way, doesn't have to be old school. It can be much more personal. And then as well as celebrating, you know, life while you're living, whether that looks like a formal living funeral, if someone is seriously ill, terminally ill, or again, working on some of those legacy projects. There's so much thought and care into what you're describing. I just, I know that I'm going to check all of this out and be thinking a lot about this. You did bring for our listeners, and I think this is so important, 10 things about grief and loss. And I was reading through them and they're so good. All of these topics are so important and there's so much to think about in, you know, end of life as a caregiver or as someone who might be facing it themselves. Mm So I'm going to walk us through, well, you're going to walk us through, but I'm going to lead us through a conversation of these 10 things because I really, I really loved what, what you had to say here. So number one, that you wanted to share 10 things to tell you about grief and loss is no one is immune. Yes. So, and I I would like to start the conversation too, just with a disclaimer that I'm not a mental health professional and I am not a clinician. So I think that's important Mm. to note at the top because we are talking about grief. You know, my background is in end of life and healthcare communications, but I'm speaking from personal experience and, you know, what I understand from the field, not as a licensed um, therapist. So No one's immune. And I think this is a great place to start the conversation because it really applies to all of us. And I think it's easy for us to see the title grief. So kudos to everyone who's listening because you could have clicked on, but I think it's easy to see the title or the word grief and loss and think, 
I either cannot deal with that or I don't know anyone who's who's died or who is dying, so this doesn't pertain to me. But we are all eventually going to lose people we love. And mm-hmm. in addition to that, we likely know someone who is currently grieving, whether they've shared that with us or not. But, you know, the, the kind of general idea that everyone's fighting a battle that you may not see, the amount of grief in the world at any given point is, is really enough to knock you off your feet if you think about it. And so we all likely know someone who's currently grieving. Additionally, we all experience levels of communal grief with current events. So Laura, you mentioned that at the top that, you know, of course, we have the current world events, events happening within our own country as well. And even even celebrity deaths affect us because our relationship, quote, relationship, right, with celebrities in different ways shapes different parts of our experience as a human over the course of our lives. And when they die, we do feel that. So it, it really, none of us are immune. I'm actually glad that you mentioned that. It felt like a silly thing, except I know that it's not silly. In the back of my first book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First, I did like a little author's note in the back of that book because it came out in 2021. Of course, I had worked out on it throughout 2020. And I wanted to know that the pandemic really shaped, you know, how I worked on that book. And then also the law, a celebrity death loss at the time it was Kobe Bryant had really affected me as an icon of Los Angeles, the city I live in. And I was almost hesitant to include it, although I did give an explanation to be like, it's not really about Kobe Bryant, although, you know, that was a tragedy. It's really about like how celebrity deaths or major events make us stop and think, make us take stock of our own lives, make us realize the shortness of of life and how it's all too fragile. And I don't like poo-poo the grieving when an icon is lost or even if it's not someone you feel a personal attachment to when I see when it happens and then you see it all over social media or something like that. I don't think that's dumb or irrational or anything. I do think it is a collective grieving. Of course, in light of world events, one celebrity death is not equal to some of the really heavy, heavy things we all have to carry. I know that. But I'm just glad that you mentioned it in terms of like, even if it is not directly affecting you, it affects us. It affects our spirit. It affects the way we move through the day. It affects the way we think about how we're shaping up our life. And so it is part of this conversation. Yeah. And it's and it's a constant reminder, too, of our own immortality. So oftentimes yes. celebrity deaths are deaths that, you know, may be, quote, out of order deaths or they may be younger. And it's it's a way for us to, you know, if we if we see them as that, if we can tap into that, it also is a way for us to engage with our own mortality. And that can shape how the decisions we make and the way that we live our lives. Yeah. It's a call to pay attention. Yes honestly. Okay. Number two you have on your 10 things to tell us about grief and loss is grief is not linear. So we often think of grief as a linear path. And part of this is due to a common misunderstanding around Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief. And we think that they were written for the griever, but they were actually written from the experience of the person who is dying. So that's, that's one thing to note that that work, her work is incredible and has informed a lot of our culture around grief, which is a great thing. But I do think it's important to note that it's written from a little bit of a different perspective. 
And it's also important to note that within her writing, she does make it clear that she is not presenting this as a linear path, but we have taken it as a culture to mean like step one, step two, right? And it's it's not like that. We can weave in and out of these steps. We can repeat steps. We can skip steps. So it really, you know, it's not that kind of progression. And it's also not predictable. So I think understanding the the lack of predictability and the lack of linearity can really help us when we're grieving to feel less, quote, crazy and also feel less alone because we mm-hmm. sometimes expect that our grief is going to look like someone else we saw. We watched maybe someone else grieve a loss two years ago and we expect it to look the same way and it's absolutely not. And that kind of leads in, we can jump if that's okay with you to the next point because it really leads in to the fact that every single loss is different because every relationship is different. So that lack of predictability, mm-hmm. all of that connects directly to the fact that our losses are all different because our relationships are different. Mm-hmm. I do want to say real quick about the stages of grief. I understand that she maybe has walked back some of those things that she wrote, but and I understand that they are not meant to be like completely literal, like step one, step two. But I still think the stages of grief helps us make sense of our feelings because we can be all over the place. It can like, you know, come over us like a tidal wave on a, on a day when we're least expecting it. And I guess it just feels like when we have this framework of the stages of grief, which aren't perfect, but are just so helpful to like, we're always trying to make sense of ourselves, right? And instead of like feeling confusion or beating ourselves up for not being able to get to the next stage or something. It just gives us something to hold on to, I feel like. And a lot of us need that. Maybe I need that. But we know we've all experienced life loss. I've experienced loss in our family. And to have someone who has spoken to it and sort of tried to make sense of it because it it does feel nonsensical at times. Mm -hmm. It's just like an it can just be an anchor a little bit when you're feeling really, really in the waves. I gave a lot of metaphors and analogies there, but I hope everybody followed it. (laughs) Yes. No, I agree. I agree. It is really helpful. And, you know, like you said, like an anchor, it also just gives us a common language because, you know, most people kind of have a general sense of what the five stages are. And so you can talk about those without having to go back to square one, essentially, in describing that. So I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, and her original intent for that was for it not to be linear. And so I think now over time, you know, we're able to discuss it and kind of go back to her original intention for that work, which is incredibly helpful. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating and yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free. It is also pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. 
Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U-Y-O-U. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. Born Shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born Sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's born, B-O-R-N, shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. And, you know, you mentioned number three is every single loss is different, and I wonder if you could say a few more words about this, because while we just briefly mentioned celebrity loss as as a collective grieving, really what we're talking about here mostly, and of course what you're dealing with in your work, is people's direct loss, Mm -hmm. you know, someone that was a loved one to them. But relationships are different. You know, losing a friend is different than losing a parent is different than losing a coworker. They, but they can all make a tremendous impact on us. And sometimes I feel like there's a grief Olympics, you know, of like, well, if we if we shared a loss, we both knew the person who was gone. Well, I feel worse or I was closer to them or it was harder on me or I have a friend that wrote it was a novel, but she actually wrote a book called Competitive Grieving. And I just resonated with that title so much because there is something to that that's unfortunate. There is. It is it is unfortunate and you know it's it's in line with comparative suffering. So those things are absolutely not helpful for a number of reasons but also because we can only truly know our own experience, right? And to your point about losing a friend is differently than losing a parent. Even if you line up 10, let's even say 10 women who have lost their mom at the same age. they are all going to grieve very differently because their relationship with their mom was so different. Their personal experience, right? The relationship was different. Their personal experience prior with grief is likely different. And that influences that as well. Because if you have had a significant loss before in your life, it uh, 100%, I can attest to this, does not make future losses easier. But what it does give you is a level of experience to say, this is this is how I felt before. And maybe in best case scenario can give you 
can helps you know what to ask for in terms of help. Mm. You know, you may have noticed patterns in, well, for example, I do really great in a crisis. I can, this is a personal example. I do great in a crisis. So I know that I can rise to the occasion in those few weeks that are really intense. And then I know that I'm going to crash afterwards, right? Whereas some people it's, it's the opposite. And so, so yeah, the different experiences, your removal from other losses and just all the complicating factors of the community you have around you or the lack of community, they all play a really significant role. Yeah, because we're always bringing our stuff to everything. We're bringing our stuff to the table, but especially really in this. And I didn't even, everyone, I wasn't even trying to make the comparison that losing a friend is even less than losing a parent, because again, it can be like the relationship to the friend and the relationship to your parent. They're not always equal. But I didn't even mean to imply that one was less than. Oh, no. It's all just different. Yes. It's just how you are going to experience that loss and, and the hole that it leaves in your life exactly. is going to be different. Okay, number four. Uh, this one, I'm already tearing up a little bit. Number four is say their name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you know someone who's grieving, saying their loved one's name out loud can make all the difference. and we often avoid talking about the person who has died because we don't want to cause more pain. It comes from a place of care and compassion and concern, usually, right? It's it's not from anything malice, but we don't want to say the name because we don't want to cause more pain and we don't know what to say sometimes. So we fear that we, there's this also phenomenon that we fear that we will quote, remind them of their loss. And if there is one message I could share today, it is that that is not possible. They have not forgotten their loss. And to think otherwise is is really just, it's diminishing of their experience and, and really can be incredibly isolating. And so that feeling of loneliness, of feeling that I'm carrying this grief with me every day, and everyone else has just moved on, you can feel so overlooked in that pain. And just hearing your loved one's name, even if even if the person doesn't know what to say beyond that, just saying, hey, I was thinking of such and such today, something simple like that can make all the difference. And it opens the door for the person who is grieving to be able to then talk and share what they're thinking or what they're feeling on that specific day. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard though when you're talking to someone and you, like you said, we don't want to bring up their loved one in maybe what feels like a happy moment because we feel like mm-hmm. it'll bring the mood down or something. Mm-hmm. But you're right. That person is carrying that loss with them every minute. Mm-hmm. I mean, we always do want to be mindful of the appropriateness, sure. you know, yeah. and that kind of thing. But but saying their name, you know, the the people I know that have also talked about this, like they just don't want their loved ones to be forgotten. Right. Right. And when we avoid talking about it and, and sharing stories or memories, saying their name, like in very specific ways, that helps that memory stay alive. That helps that person's spirit stay around us. And yeah, that's such a, that's such a good one, but I am, I should have brought tissue. It does. Well, and I'm, I'm really glad that you, I'm really glad that you made the point about acknowledging and being aware of the time and the place and and all of that and that is incredibly important and you know for example if you're at a party or something it's all 
it's always important to be mindful of their privacy as well. So some people, you know, may feel very comfortable ask, answering your questions or engaging with you in conversation, but they're not going to do that if there are other people around. So, you know, all of this is in the spirit of support and not causing unnecessary discomfort. And so keeping in mind the privacy element and then, of course, just listening to their cues. You know, if, you, if you're really mindful we don't want to go in with an agenda. We don't want to go in with a, you have to talk about this because if you don't talk about this, it means that you're not really dealing with your loss. That That's not our job at all. It's more invitational. It's more say their name, let them know, let them hear the name, and then really follow their steps on where you go from there. Oh yeah, that's such a good, taking their cues is such a good point. Okay, number five is <laughs> it can be complicated officially. <laughs> yes. So sometimes grief moves into a formal diagnosis of complicated grief, complex grief, prolonged grief. There's different names. And I, I actually have personal experience with this. So I find this specific point just especially interesting. And it's important to note too, that some forms of grief may require more support than others. So for example, prolonged grief disorder quote was added to the DSM-5 in 2022. And it caused quite a stir in the grief community because, well, I should back up and say that the definition, their definition of prolonged grief disorder is defined as intense and persistent grief that causes problems and interferes with daily life. And they kind of established that at a year after loss for an adult or six months afterward for a child. This was very controversial for good reason, because on one hand, it made people feel like we are pathologizing what is a normal human experience. And we're adding a layer of shame and pressure to an already difficult experience. So that's kind of one end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. On the other end, it really can be helpful for insurance and therapeutic purposes to have a diagnosis. So I, you know, it's important to kind of recognize both ends of that spectrum when we talk about it. But but yes, you know, it it can be something that even though all grief looks different and everyone's timeline is going to be different, it's important to just be aware that there is at some point a certain, you know, a certain level of concern and, and support, extra support may be needed. Mm. That is really interesting. I'm glad that you brought that up. I guess I haven't thought through or been educated on at all about like the official sort of diagnosis mm -hmm. of, of that. So yeah, I'm glad that you're telling us about that. And one thing too I would add here is just there's a lot of conversation around the first year after a death and for good reason mm -hmm. because the first year after a death you're dealing with everything for the first time, holidays, birthdays, death anniversary, you know, possibly some some anniversaries, some triggering memories in terms of a diagnosis or a surgery. And there there is a lot to be said for the first year, but I I also think it's important to encourage people that, you know, no one expects your grief to end after a year. And of course, it will look different over time, but there is nothing magical about 12 months. You And oftentimes people have another surge of grief, you know, around like 18 months or some point after the 12 month mark, because in some ways, oftentimes you're just surviving in that first year, depending on the nature of the loss. So I would just throw that out there to you. Again, helpful in certain areas, especially for the people who are surrounding you with support to be aware of when these anniversaries are happening to reach out. But also, I just really encourage people, if you have someone in your life who has had a loss that you know was a pretty significant loss for them, set reminders in your phone for 
that recur every single year on Father's Day or on Mother's Day or their birthday because a lot of people will reach out that first year, but the support dwindles quickly. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I do feel like that first year is very, the most acute grief. Yes. And then as you know, maybe life starts to move forward or maybe starts to look like you might have more normal days or something like that. And then from a mental health perspective, which I feel like I know a little bit more about than I do grief, but I know that from a mental health perspective, like I said earlier, you can end up having a very rough time on just a random mm-hmm. Tuesday mm-hmm. years after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and we haven't always connected the dots. We don't always let ourselves feel that kind of grief because we start to be like, oh, I should be at a different stage. I should be past this. It, it can't really be that. Of course it can be that. It like lives in our bones. It lives in our body. It is a loss is is traumatic. Yeah. Um. And, and trauma shows up. It shows back up. It does. It does. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And my, you know, my personal experience was that the hardest, I mean, of course, the very first year was horrible in a lot of ways, even to the point where you oftentimes don't remember a lot of things that happened. But I, interestingly enough, uh, ended up from a mental health perspective, packing away my grief. I was so scared of it that I, I really feared that if I looked at it head on, it would swallow me whole when Teresa died. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't realize that was what I was doing, but what I was doing was completely not addressing it. And it was a full, I think it was 12 years later when I actually said, okay, I'm going to revisit this and I'm going to actually look at it because I knew it was impacting my body. And so for me, that, that 12 year mark, when I kind of intentionally made a decision to face it, that was in many ways more difficult even than the first year. Oh, I'm glad you said that because I, again, I think we've sort of beat ourselves up for not quote unquote getting over it or not feeling like we have moved along the stages at a fast enough pace or whatever, whatever we sort of tell ourselves culturally or when we're just hard on ourselves in many ways. So I'm really glad that you said that. I'm glad you're saying all of these. I think I I said that after every point. I'm so glad you said that (laughs) because it's true. Number six, this is beautiful. Number six is we can find meaning in our grief. So David Kessler is a grief therapist who worked alongside Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the one that we referenced earlier with with the stages of grief. And he wrote a book suggesting that there is a sixth stage of grief called finding meaning, meaning. And so that is not the cliche, everything happens for a reason, but rather it's how do we move forward with our loss? So many people look for, quote, closure after a loss, but he argues that it's finding meaning beyond the classic stages of grief that can really transform grief into a more peaceful and hopeful experience. And, you know, also that it's possible for us to remember those who have died with more love than pain. Eventually, you cannot rush that process. You cannot artificially claim that you've hit a certain point in seeing it with more love than pain. You just have to let it be. But it's an invitation to consider what it looks like to move forward in a way that honors our loved ones. Mm. What does that mean, though, to find meaning in it when you're not being cliche about it? Does it mean like sort of seeing how it affected our own life and how we can carry it forward maybe with other generations or, you know, you're making meaning of it by starting this thing, this company that helps others deal with this thing that you went through. So what are like ways that we can find meaning or, or what, how does David Kessler or you approach that? Like what, what does that really look like? 
Yeah. So he, and I think it's important too, to note that to your point about like, how do you do that? If you're not being cliche, you're not saying everything happens for a reason. The finding meaning is not, is not ever with the intention of saying, this is why the person died. You know, they died so that I could go do something or this thing could happen in the world. That's a whole other conversation, but he's, he's referring to finding meaning in terms of our own lives and how, where do we channel that energy, right? When somebody we love dies, we have all this love that we previously could direct at them in a human experience. And now that's gone. So where do we channel that energy? And so, you know, for me, of course, yes, that's led to my work. That is not most people's. <laughs> we are not all called to, you know, start something like this just because we lost someone, but we can find meaning in the everyday. It can be something really intimate, like, a saying that they used to use that was really helpful for you and that you kind of have as a person. I know you talk a lot about mantras. So a personal mantra may be something that they said and that's private, right? Mm -hmm. It's just you, nobody else knows about it, but it can be something as small and as private as that, or something as large as, you know, oftentimes people will channel that energy into creating fundraisers or something like that to help alleviate Mm -hmm. the pain and suffering of another person. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Number seven. Oh, I was so happy to see this one. Number seven is we are in a new age of memorial gifts. Yes. And thank God for that because we have probably all gotten a really terrible memorial gift with the best of intentions, but there just weren't a lot of options out there. And so when you think about memorial gifts or even memorial flowers, you may think a lot about like styrofoam doves or, you know, like poorly smelling candles that are shaped in some odd shape. (laughs) There's just, we've kind of seen it all. And so when we think about tangible ways to memorialize our loved ones, those like dated funeral homes, sad photo frames, like that's not the only option now. There are now ways that we can show love in ways that match our lifestyle and aesthetics while also bringing comfort. And that can include anything from the, I mean, the world of memorial jewelry now has exploded. Mm. And there are options. I mean, you can take ashes and turn them into diamonds and then use that diamond as a necklace or, and that can become an heirloom piece. And that's, you know, that's one way to go. You can also have memorial jewelry that's just much more custom to, you know, not kind of like the old school, like grandma jewelry with like all the dangly kids hanging off the pennant, you know, (laughs) but an elevated experience of that. And then also there, I mean, everything from like modern urns that look like vases that you would have in your home. And it's a way to, if, if you would like to have an urn in your home, it's a way to have that really feel like it's part of your aesthetic and part of your environment rather than something that's sticking out like a sore thumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also like the opportunities that seem to have arisen more. I don't know if this was common or not, or if I've just gotten older and noticed it more of like at our, my kid's school, there's like a brick mm-hmm. pavement kind of thing that was, I think it might've been a fundraiser or something, but a lot of people did in memoriam mm-hmm. bricks there for that little space, this like really beautiful garden space at the school. Like when we lost a loved one, we got a bench mm-hmm. at somewhere that was very meaningful to him. And we were able to sort of customize that. And that was a way to sort of honor him. That's not 
at a grave site. Right. You know, like it, which felt really good to us, like that we had it in this place that meant something to him that was pretty and that wasn't just a place of collective loss, but was, you know, just part of the city rather. Right. That felt really good. And I feel like I've started to notice more opportunities for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those are especially beautiful to me because I look at that on both the micro and the macro level. If you look at it on an individual perspective, so the plaque, for example, that created meaning and, you know, a a space for you and your family. And that's incredibly powerful. You're honoring something that this person you love, loved. And so on an individual basis, it's worth its weight in gold by itself. Also, when you look at it collectively, like the memorial stones you're referencing on the pathway, the more we are able to incorporate these things into our everyday lives, the more we're going to pay attention to, again, the reality of our mortality which it's easier to have a conversation about someone if you're sitting on a bench with someone and you see a tree with a plaque across from you. You know, you can remember if you yeah. knew the person or you can talk about, you know, their family. And so it, these are all little nudges and little positive triggers to remind us that we want to talk about the people who have gone on, you know, the people who have passed away. And we also want to explore what that means for us now and how that can change the way we're living today. Yeah. Yeah. That's a a wonderful way to look at it. Number eight, you may want to explore continuing bonds. Okay. I did not, I did not know what this meant. So please explain. Okay. So I couldn't decide whether or not to leave this in because this is on the spectrum. This is closer to woo-woo, as you say. It is, it is pretty woo-woo. Okay. Well, I am, I am open to the woo-woo. I know not everyone is, especially in context of this. This can be a tender and sensitive sort of topic, but it matters in the conversation, honestly. So please do explain. It does. It definitely matters. And I am by far not an expert on this. So if you, if anyone is interested in continuing bonds, there are some really interesting things being written about this. But is that like a phrase? That's like so. There's something called thing? continuing bonds theory, and that says okay. that when a loved one dies, our relationship with them does not necessarily end, but it changes over time. The bond can remain and engaging in rituals and personal activities can maintain and grow these bonds as time moves on. It's kind of the official definition. It's important to note, though, that this theory in and of itself is not faith-based and it can really transcend religion. So, you know, we're not discussing this in the context of just one faith. There's a lot of lot of connection points here. And- oh, yeah. Like, I feel like, so my friends and I talk about this piece, which is why I'm glad we're talking about it here. But that we are across the spectrum on faith and spirituality, mm-hmm. you know, in general. And then when we talk about this piece, feeling bonded to someone who has passed, yeah, if there's a whole spectrum of what we believe about that, and then it, maybe you don't, you don't believe in it theoretically, and then it sort of happens for you. Like there, mm-hmm. it can, you can change the way you feel about this. I guess is what I'm saying, mm-hmm. or maybe the opposite is true. I'm, I'm unsure, but this is not. Yeah, this isn't. This isn't particular to one faith or even belief system. This is a thing that has been around for centuries and centuries, the idea of continuing a relationship with those that have gone. Right. And um, actually, it was my grief therapist who originally brought this to my attention. And that was in that was in a, a professional context, obviously, but also, you know, in, in terms of kind of where where those conversations usually went, it was not toward the more woo-woo, if you will. And it was it was a little bit more concrete. And so 
that it's a spectrum again, like everything is. So kind of on one end, you have continuing bonds in the way of you can choose to do activities in your life that help you still feel connected to their memory. So it can be along the lines of like, okay, our relationship is not over because I'm still able to engage in something that we enjoyed together and remember them. And that isolated incident is enough to kind of, you know, quote, count as a continuation of the relationship kind of on one end. And then on the other end, of course, you have you have the, the idea of, of much more, you know, higher levels of interaction with them now versus just just memory. I also just want to say, kind of regardless of where you land on this or what's happening there, if you feel the presence of someone that has passed, like kind of regardless of where you land on it, let's say that you, here's an example. If you have decided or it seems to you that every time you see butterflies, it reminds you of your loved ones. This is sort of a common thing that I've sort of seen, like that someone maybe attaches to a sign or a symbol or something. Regardless of where you land on what's actually happening there, like spiritually or, or from a science perspective or whatever, it doesn't ultimately matter if it reminds you mm-hmm. of your loved one and lets you take a pause and remember and feel like love and gratitude or, you know, just face your own mortality for a second and just just take a pause And so I kind of just want to say that of like, if you have a symbol or a sign, that too can be like a spectrum of what you believe is actually happening there. And also it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to have a science basis to it. If it brings you comfort or if it gives you, you know, just a moment of gratitude and remembrance. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm glad you said that. And I think that's important. I love, I love the piece about it, it. ultimately doesn't really matter. And for many years, I'll share a personal story. For many, many years, I was just much more of a concrete thinker, I would say. And to me, it very much mattered. You know, I felt like I was on this quest to figure out, is it real? So I was reading all the scientific theory and the religious theory, you know, like all the different perspectives. And and I was kind of not obsessed with it, but I was definitely fixated on it for quite a while. And at the end of the day, I kind of felt like, okay, yeah, we're we're never going to really we're never going to really know. And that did not sit well with me because again, I like to have a sense of things. And until, and this was not an experience that happened with Teresa. It was actually, I lost one of my best friends from high school in a car accident about five years ago. And I had an experience in the middle of the night that is much more on the woo-woo end of what we're talking about. And it was, the details of it were really remarkable, but what stayed with me after the fact, and I mean, it, it was like a split second change in my perspective on this, on this piece of the conversation is that not only did it feel like I don't care, like it, I could not have cared less what anyone says about it. Because I think if you have an experience, then it just changes it, you know? And so, Mm -hmm. so I will say that too, as I went from being really interested in quote, figuring it out to all of a sudden, literally overnight being like, oh, I don't care what people say because this is what happened to me. Right. It lives within you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's so good. Okay. Number nine, we can integrate their memory into our lives. 
We've talked a little bit about this throughout this conversation, but say a few more words about that. Yeah. And this will look different over time. So what feels comforting in the first few weeks after a loss may not have the same effect five years later. And in the same way, things that may feel connective many years after the death may be too difficult to engage with in the earlier days of grief when you're in shock and when everything is raw. So a few examples are, you know, referencing loved ones when they come to mind. So if you're having a conversation with a friend and you remember something funny that someone said, you know, and you would you would say another living friend maybe made this comment, you wouldn't blink twice. You wouldn't think twice about saying that. So, you know, we can also reference our loved ones and things that they said and did in those conversations as well. Um, You know, cooking favorite meals on their birthday, using their belongings in our home, making very specific plans on their death anniversary. Also writing letters to those we've lost, keeping photos around, again, talking with them about the people who knew them and who didn't know them, and finishing a project they were working on, taking a trip they always wanted to take. The possibilities are, are really quite broad and, and exciting once you, once you start thinking about it. There's a lot, of, a lot of room for connection there. Well, and what you're talking about is what we already mentioned a little bit in terms of keeping it alive because we don't want our loved ones to be forgotten. Right. We don't want our time with them to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. We don't want our own memories mm-hmm. to become lost in that. Like if you're looking at the whole of your life, there is going to be a delineation mm-hmm. oftentimes of a before and an after. And so you don't want to take everything that was before and that be taboo, you know, or be something that we can't we can't touch, you know. Mm-hmm. Now like putting it into our lives, into our traditions, into our holiday celebrations. Uh, into the way that we speak of our family or our lives as a whole is to me that feels more wholehearted living mm-hmm. than compartmentalizing off well these things are the untouchables or the unsayables yeah and and i also agree with your first point of like what might feel available to us in this realm is going to change mm-hmm. over time mm-hmm. because you don't want to incorporate them necessarily into your immediate memories when you're in the acute grief of facing the loss because it feels too hard right. that 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 chair is now empty right right but then as time goes on that chair becomes a place of honoring let's say yeah and i love what you said about the different seasons or the different portions of our lives because along those same lines there are some losses that we will experience where we will be a markedly different person after that loss. There is a before, right? There's a before and an after of our lives. And so it's important not to lose kind of the whole of our lives before that, but also just who were we before we knew this kind of pain? And mm. not that we want to, you know, of course we would, we want to have our person back, but not that we would even like to go back to the way we used to be, quote, or unquote. But it's an, it's an important part of our life and it can easily get erased because all of a sudden all you can feel is who you are now. And it's important not to lose that because it's, it's all the whole of our life. Like you said, it's holistic. Yeah. You'll never be the same. Right. But as Joan Didion says, you know, you can sort of stay in touch mm-hmm. with your younger self or your before self, just sort of stay in touch with that person, even yeah. though, you know, you'll never be exactly who you were before. Mm-hmm. Number 10, grief can transform the way we live. Well, I think before we dive into the 10th one, it would be maybe helpful just to have everyone who's listening take a pause, just take a moment, take a deep breath. It's a weighty conversation. 
And I really want to acknowledge the space and the energy that we're holding for each other and what's required of everyone to enter into this conversation. Um, but yeah, while it may be, it is absolutely heavy and difficult and excruciating. My tenth thing is a really beautiful way to end the conversation. And that's that if we let it, grief can transform the way we live. And I never want to say that in any way that implies a silver lining or a bow on top of something. I think anyone who's lost someone will very quickly say, you know, I would give anything in this world to have them back. And yet we are going to lose. And so like, how do we let that grief that's going to come to all of us, how do we let it transform the way we live? And I believe that it really can be an invitation into living a richer, fuller, more intentional life. And it can lead us to live more open and deeply connected lives. Yeah, I agree. It's not a silver lining. It's not that you're like glad for the loss in any way, shape or form. It's just acknowledging that this is the facts of what happened. And it is a thing that transformed me. It's a thing that transformed me and the relationship has forever changed you because we change each other. And also it's our grief is kind of a thing in and of itself. And so I just hope it feels like an encouragement to be gentle with yourself and your own grief and also to care well for those who you love who may be grieving. And then ultimately to have a relationship with our own mortality so that 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 intentional living can become really part of our marrow in a way that honors our experience and that also honors the people who we've lost. Yes. Ah, what a perfect way to end. So these 10 things that we've talked about are a lot of our sort of emotions and handling it over lengths of time. But near your company has actual like resources like logistics and facts and things like that that are helpful to those who are walking down this path with someone that they love. Can you just make sure and share with the listeners where they can find near and find some of those resources and all of that information? And you, and you personally, Christy. (laughs) Sure. So in terms of, I'll do the easy one first. In terms of social handles, you can find me on Instagram at Christy Lee Knutson. That's K-N-U-T-S-O-N. And then you can find Near on Instagram at Stay Near Co. That's Stay Near C-O. Our website is staynear.co, and we created a resource page for listeners to this conversation. You can find that at staynear.co slash 10 things, one zero things. And on there, you'll find a number of resources, some of the things we talked about, some highlights of grief books that may be helpful to continue the conversation. Also, just you know, a link to our care registry that we talked about earlier. The care registry can be used for someone who is experiencing a serious illness, or it can also be for someone who has experienced a loss, especially when there are larger families involved or traveling involved. There's a lot of practical needs. And so those care registries are helpful to set up at that point to help them with the transition over the coming months. We also have a holiday gift guide to help give really thoughtful, meaningful gifts for people who are experiencing illness at the holidays or grieving. Also for the caregivers, the caregivers oftentimes get left out and they are, they're really doing the, so much of the hard work. And so it's a helpful way to honor them. It's just helping them feel really seen and known even at the holidays when everything's kind of crazy. 
Did y'all hear that? She created a resource page just for 10 things to tell you listeners. I will link to all of this in the show notes, in the show description, so you don't have to memorize it. But I think that you will want to go check this out for sure. Christy, thank you so much for just sharing your wisdom, your experience, your thoughtfulness with our listeners. This is a hard conversation. It's not always a fun conversation to have with ourselves and with our friends and loved ones and and families, but it's a necessary one. And so some of the things about share your stuff that I preach all the time, it's not always super fun, y'all. It can be hard, but it is such an important part of life. And let's try and help one another navigate it better. So thank you so much. It's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you, Laura. The pleasure. It's all mine. You've just listened to an episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. For show notes and links, go to 10thingstotellyou.com. Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. And you can also join our free connection group on Facebook to discuss episodes and topics. For bonus content, ad-free episodes, and monthly Zoom gatherings with me, join my Secret Stuff Patreon community by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret stuff. Thanks for listening. 